confidence is not this like King Kong beat my chest ego thing as I do it. It's, it's not that. It's like the less you have to think about the activity, the more on autopilot you are. It's a sign of great confidence. Now, the way that I talk about confidence in the book is one of the reasons why people are not living the life that they want to live personally in terms of their daily habits, the, the choices that they make, and, and small stuff. I don't just mean having a ridiculous amount of money or, or like living you know, on the beach in Jamaica or something. I mean, specifically, people are not living up to the standards of themselves that they want to have because they don't have confidence in doing it. You know, someone who says, I'm going to try to wake up at 5.30 a.m. tomorrow morning, immediately as they say that, if they're like anybody, they have this voice in the back of their head that goes, remember every single time that we said that and didn't do it? What's going to make this time any different? So when you lack confidence about your ability to accomplish new things for yourself, you don't really change because the crushing, the, the trauma of unrealized potential just burdens you. That is Joseph Abel and Legends. You are listening to the Effie Table Podcast. Welcome back, Legends. Chef Dan here, your friendly neighborhood chef. And team, just want to say it was so cool to have quite a number of you. I say quite a number of you because it's been such a blessing to get to know some of your visions and goals after putting out a little note in last week's episode of the podcast around personal branding. Personal branding is something that I know a lot of you have been just truly interested in as this world continues to evolve, how your brand can play such a major part in your personal growth, both professionally uh, you know, and personally. So really cool to have a lot of you reach out. And in doing so, I got to have some really cool conversations with people. And thank you again for giving me your time to do so. If you have not listened to the episode around personal branding and you're looking to maybe build your personal brand and look into certain things that can improve, I've dropped in some of my keynotes and I'll continue to do some of these podcasts going forward because I know a lot of you send out questions regarding it. So check last week's episode of the podcast. And if this is your first time joining us, make sure you hit that subscribe button because not only this week, but upcoming, we've got some pretty exciting sports scientists some doctors coming in to talk more about aerobic capacity, uh, the importance of strain and stress and how we can you truly unlock our potential through those means as well we got some characters in the athletic space and also some people just truly helping us to find our personal nutritional goals as well speaking of personalized nutrition uh i'm in week nine now of my 10 week i guess i'm gonna call it challenge my 10 week journey of being plant-based It's been incredible. It really, really has. Uh, If you've been following the series, I've been learning a lot. I've been particularly, uh, you know, I think when I'm back in my New York City area, it's much easier for me to hit my protein goals. And then when I travel, I'm definitely finding the challenges there. But I think it's so much more achievable than people think just from an outsider perspective, which I'm hoping you guys are grasping from watching watching the series itself. But one of the coolest things that I want to talk about was... I was tracking and have been tracking my journey um, from my gut and also my blood and, and my blood glucose and my blood fat response using Zoe. So pretty sure you guys know I work with Zoe and it's a personalized nutritional program where we effectively send out uh, a testing kit and we get you to help us to help learn more about you by uh, getting samples of your blood work and then also taking a sample of your stool. And what that allows us to do, it gives us a baseline measurement for where you currently sit with uh, your responses to certain foods. For example, you may respond well to banana, someone else may not. Uh, You may respond well to certain fats, some others may not. But ultimately, it's a really cool indicator of 
different types of foods and how we truly should look at us as uh, personally individually or by individuals i always talk about one of the coolest things though is outside of that was all that stool sample allows us to understand your gut microbiota and so from that we're able to understand what bugs you have that we want to get rid of and using the foods in order to do so to get rid of them and in my current journey i'm seeing a really cool response to certain foods that i was lacking probably in my omnivorous diet ways and so I did all this simply by using the app. So I did a testing kit and this is something I did obviously six months ago. Uh, and I'm seeing some, like my score admittedly was already pretty solid given the amount of plants I was already having. But what you get is not only does it track your protein, fats and carbs daily by putting in obviously what you're eating. It's even more important to me outside of just a typical tracking app in that it tells you your specific response to foods. It tells you whether you're having a good, excellent or poor uh, response, just tracking how your body is responding. And then on top of that, it allows you to understand if you're having the right amount of plants and if you're having a right diversity of plants to support your performance. So if you want to learn more about that, head to joinzoe.com. I'm a massive believer. If you are truly trying to find personalized nutrition, you're looking for someone who can help you understand if the right foods are for you, go to joinzoe.com. Use my code DAN10 and you'll get a little discount. It'll also let people know that you are a legend yeah head to joinzoe.com and then ultimately add in dan 10 and i'm looking forward to getting your testing kit sent to you straight to your door team following up the podcast episode on personal branding this week i thought it was perfect to have joseph abel on now joseph he wrote a book called unlimited willpower and i loved i loved reading the book it's a very nice quick read because what happened was as i was reading the pages and then flip I'd be like, yeah, I'm inspired for like even more drive within myself. As I read pages, I could absolutely relate to a lot of things that Joseph was writing. And so for me, when I'm doing that, I'm like, well, this is what really helps me motivate myself to look inside myself to push further. So for example, some of the topics we discussed were willpower is the ability to consciously change your default behavior. And so I think that's a pretty important topic, particularly around this day and age where Sometimes we do fall into, I wouldn't say a habit, but a default setting. And the willpower to change that, whether for you know performance or improvements or whatever it is, can can really show your willpower in general. Other ones were like confidence is memory of past success. I'm like, yes, love it. So anyway, I don't want to go further into this without you know spoiling too much, but effectively it's one of those books that I took away just going, yeah, I'm I'm charging. I mean, I'm lit up every single day by what I get to do. Uh, but this was awesome as well. So make sure you check out Joseph Abel on his Instagram as well. And if you want to pick up the book, go for it. Welcome to the podcast, Joseph Abel. Joseph, my dude, welcome to the Epic Table podcast. Thanks for having me. Mate, you're currently in LA in your very notable uh, glass circulating apartment in uh, downtown. I won't obviously give specifics just in case people decide to go visit you. Uh, but this is um, this is a relatively new space for you. You're from where were you actually born? I think uh, you told me where you were previously. Where are you actually born? I was born in the middle of nowhere in New York, in upstate, um, a place so rural. Just to get like it, it was so rural that like the U.S. Census uses it for testing because there's nobody there. Like I was, I was actually <laughs> born in a different city from where I lived because where I lived didn't have a hospital. 
Um, oh. It was so, not to make too much of this point, but it was so rural that I developed a British accent as a kid from listening to Winnie the Pooh tapes because I didn't have enough other standard American accent dialect to like outweigh that. So it was very sheltered and very... So I mean, <laughs> What yeah. do we have? Do we have like a corner store? Do we have uh, like what do we have in the what's the, what's the neighborhood called? Uh, there literally wasn't a neighborhood. It was like our nearest neighbor <laughs> was like thirty miles away, and they didn't have a telephone. So oh, it wow. was the Good middle of nowhere. My dad did rural construction, so it was like it was part of the gig. But uh, yeah, that was but raised in like the wilderness of New York. Okay, For the first well, uh, congratulations. For congratulations to, well, I won't say congratulations, but obviously you're different from where you are now. So uh, it's good to, good to see someone like yourself is definitely learning to be diverse in our upbringing. If you were yeah. I don't well, like. I mean, it's that's definitely it's definitely different for me from being from the northern beaches of Sydney to New York City. Let's, let's say that. Oh yeah, I mean, I started in, but I started there, and then I moved to Buffalo, New York, and sort of a like suburban urban area. And then I moved to Tennessee and was in a complete suburban, like the most stereotypical suburban place ever. And I lived on a farm and then I went, you know, moved to the city of Los Angeles and downtown. So I've been in all of the like suburban, urban, rural ecosystems. Uh, I've had it all, <laughs> had it all done. Wow. And did you, uh, did you develop a, uh, I don't know, are you into NFL? Uh, like the, the national football league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, are you a Bills fan being in Buffalo? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, a, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed bandwagon. I, I sort of hop on towards the end of the year and I'm like, pretend I'm a fan, but I just, I used to be a football fan when I was a little kid, but then I switched off and like played other sports like soccer and tennis. And so my love for the professional side of things sort of dwindled, but I, I get into it in, in the playoff season for sure. You know what, man? I'm probably I'm really happy that you actually admitted to the fact that you're a bandwagon supporter. I don't think there's many people out there that legitimately just go straight off the bat that they're willing to tell thousands of people straight on a podcast that they are a bandwagon, man. So uh, kudos, kudos to you, man. But speaking of those wonderful people listening in right now, uh, they are part of the reason why this podcast took shape. So you and I got connected based on the fact that people want me to interview you uh along with uh some other people in general just stating your case and i was like checking you out my like, dude this guy's this guy's a legend so um i received your book unlimited willpower i read it in the case of probably like i don't know like honestly about three three hours right and it was just really quick read uh loved it and as a result i'm like yeah this, this dude is uh, definitely someone I want to be chatting to. So that's how this, uh, this, has, this episode has taken place, mate. But um, before that <laughs> moment in time, there's obviously a story behind Joseph himself. So, mm-hmm. man, like I think let's get to the point of uh, your undergrad to where you are yeah. now. So do you want to kick things off for us, my man? Yeah. Uh, so in undergrad, I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I had a friend who was like, listen, you need to go to college. Just even if you don't use your degree, just go there and figure it out. So I just before college, had started a company called Acepeak, which is an education platform that teaches speech and debate to high school students. And um, in the interim period before I got to college, Acepeak started to grow from this sort of small gig where I was just going around teaching students to like the most respected coaching institution out there. And then when I got to college and started working on it in the background, um, what was a side hustle turned into a full-fledged company. I remember the day that I 
I, uh, the day I realized I was running a company was the day I took a class on how to use Excel and then used the sum function on the finances of the company. I was like, oh, okay, this is not just a little like tutoring game, <laughs> a whole bunch thing. And our students started to win nationals and, and do really well. Meanwhile, I'm finishing out my education and still wondering what to do. In the very last semester, um, so there's this guy I met in the, in the school gym. His name is John. And uh, we were both philosophy majors. We we're both um, like type A, like high achievers. That, that, was just our, just, that was just our thing. We always did really well. And towards the end, we had two, there were two older students that were in the same class as us that sort of mentored me and John into doing law school. And we were like, look, like we could do some generic management position like with our degrees, but come on, like let's stay in school. Let's like get a great job. Let's, go, let's, let's get to a great firm and a great school. And we pushed for it. So uh, John and I sort of like leveled with each other. And then for six straight weeks, studied like 14 hours a day for the LSAT, the entrance exam for law school. Um, and then we took it. We both got great scores. And we actually got the same score, which was crazy. We're always so competitive. Um, but we, we got you know exact same score and both got great, um, great scholarships and great uh, school opportunities. I got into a couple schools, but most, most notably got into USC on uh, something called the Rothman Scholarship, which is basically like a full ride, a living stipend, and a guaranteed internship with the second biggest law firm in the world. So it's kind of the whole package. And I, I was the lucky, well, it was it was partially luck, but it was also like I interviewed well and I fought for the position and I got it. So um, and yeah, and then I moved to Los Angeles and I'm doing law school here. That's the story. Yeah, man, I want to double click on that for a second. Uh, so can you kind of can you kind of explain that process? I'm, I'm very curious because obviously they, to not only get full ride, obviously a stipend too, and then obviously the uh, one of a, a very you know, prestigious uh, law firm opportunity. It, it, I can only imagine there's degrees of, uh, I guess, uh, doors you have to open and then you know move on to the next. But can you kind of, if you're able to, explain that process? Because I think I'm... I want to kind of understand you and your, your routines a little bit. Yeah. Do you mean the law school application process broadly? Yeah, man. Like I'm, I'm thinking the closest thing I have to is watching Legally Blonde straight up. So like this is, uh, um, <laughs> I want to understand how many different, how many procedures it took, um, you know, what you had to do, the, the work essentially related to that. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there are, I, it, I'm really, I really like that you're asking that too, because that's a question that so many people have when they're trying to get started into law school, which a lot mm. of the, a lot of people that follow me on social media, that's like, that's their connection. They're like, okay, I want to go to law school someday. This guy did it well. How do we, how do I, how do I follow his footsteps? So the, the process sure. starts by uh, taking the LSAT exam. You know, anyone can take the LSAT exam. Um, they're not really, I'm not aware of any specific limitations on it, but you study for it and you take it. The LSAT exam is kind of weird because it's not, it's not like the MCAT for medical school where you would need to like, you would need to understand a ton of biology and microbiology and whatever else. It's like anyone could take an LSAT. It's just like, it's just like puzzles. It's like word games. It's reading comprehension. It's like little puzzles. They're logic based. They're not just trivial, um, but anyone could sit down and take it and finish the exam. Now, the difficulty of the LSAT is that it's super, you know, you're under a lot of time pressure. So the first time you take it, you feel demoralized because you barely finished like half of the questions. Um, but it's, it's tricky and you study for it. So once you take it and get your score, um, you know, you have to finish college of course, and have, you know, a, a notable GPA hopefully. And then you apply with your LSAT and your GPA and, uh, your personal statement, which is basically a statement about why you're going to law school. You also, in, in 
sort of the last like four or five years, law schools have started either requiring or at least accepting an additional diversity statement, which is a statement about what you contribute to uh, or how you contribute to the diversity on a law school campus. Um, and diversity, of course, is broad. It's not purely uh, you know, about um, identity traits or, or race or something, but it's broadly about like, how are you going to improve this space at law school? Uh, and then you apply, um, shoot off your applications through a lengthy process and you wait to hear back. Uh, sometimes you'll get interviews, sometimes you'll get uh, straight acceptances, what have you. you. You may negotiate between schools for certain scholarship deals and leverage like, hey, I haven't offered NYU, like Columbia, you're going to have to do this for me, you know? Um, so you'll push for that um, and then you'll make your decision. And that is like the best day ever because you're finally done. Everyone always says the hardest part of law school is getting in, which is true. Um, everything else after that is, well, it's not easy by any stretch of imagination, but it's a lot less stressful because at least you have a place at a school once you're there. And then, you know, in, uh, once you're in law school, it's sort of weird. Your first year at law school is your, is like, like 80 times more important than the last two, uh, for most people, because your first year determines your grades that you use to apply to law firms for your internship. So hopefully you get good grades and you get a great internship and you can, you can work at a great firm. Um, of course, there's a lot of different avenues people take with law school. So it's not like the only way to do it is to work for a big firm. But yeah, that, that first year is super important. And then um, not that the last years aren't important at all, but the first year, the year to get that internship and the impression, that's kind of key. And that's and then you graduate, take the bar and go to a firm forever. And that's your life. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, mate. Thank you for sharing. Super sure. insightful. Uh, and I probably will not be doing law any anytime soon. I'm never gonna. I'm never going to say never because you just never know in this world, particularly with my just ability to go off on tangents. Uh, but uh, no, it sounds sounds like you've had a grueling campaign, uh, irrespective of it, man. But it's very interesting to note that the first year is has much more of a impact on I guess the, the later or oh, the latter the latter couple. Um right. but uh yeah man no, no, no now you see there's always a stressful stressful period. You just would have thought it's like oh finally over and then you get to the next one. So but irrespective right. of that you've managed to keep your head on um because uh yeah where so what year are you in right now man? Uh, I'm in my second year so I'm wrapping up the second semester of my second year. Wow. Okay, cool. And uh, this was all taking place, obviously, during that lovely transition of deep COVID, correct? Yeah. Our first year was totally online, which freaked everyone out. Everyone's like, you know, oh my God, you know, these these attorney, these are going to be the attorneys that are sued for malpractice because their first year, they got such a scant education. Um, <laughs> but it worked really well. Like the truth is, is that most, um, you know, law is about accumulating your understanding of social rules. Like that's pretty much it. So if you know the rules really well and you know how to apply them well and you know the case law that built the rules we have, you're good to go. So, you know, it's it's uh, for me, the online format change didn't impact a whole lot. And for some people, it was a direct upgrade because they were like they weren't as stressed with their commute or, you know, and even when we did go in person, we all had to wear masks, which, um, you know, it's just like difficult to concentrate when you're, you know, you're breath is just like lighting your face on fire. You know what I mean? It's just an unideal and suboptimal environment anyways. But yeah, that was the first year. Uh, and then we sort of moved back in person now, but even then, you know, professors are pretty lenient and a lot of people will go online for a day because they're not feeling well. So it's just sort of the world we're in now where everything, everything that's in person has an asterisk to a zoom option. So 
that's that's where we yeah. are. I'm sure I'm sure professors probably find it hard to one, uh, you know, it's like I think it's like anything right now, and this is just broadly speaking, in any industry, when someone says they're sick, you know, it's it's actually very hard for you to be like, well, and like say you're the the employer or the professor or something like that, be like, well, you know, that's you know, you're clearly sick all the time or whatever it is. It's very hard for you to justify or f- find any form of like, well, I don't believe them be purely because it, it could be, but also if you don't, it's a, uh, it's a tough one to kind of really say, well, you know, um, what you don't really have any le- legs to stand on right now is what I'm saying. Like even owning a restaurant versus also seeing friends back home in, in the educational sphere. And they're like talking about how they don't really have the ability to discipline in this situation. So I can, uh, I can, I can understand where, it is obviously a, a factor of safety, so I can understand how that comes through. But it well, is also for you uh, amongst your peer group a, a different form of environment to learn from. But irrespective, you found yourself uh, in this situation that you've definitely, like you know, you've earned to be, um, you know, get the scholarship, uh, you know, the, the amazing grades you've got. But on top of that, you seem like someone who just loves to fill your cup. Right, so you love love to be doing things, whether it be extracurricular activities, starting new businesses, um, and uh, and writing books. So, uh, as I alluded to in the intro, you've written a book that I've read, and uh, that was was that about a year ago, mate? Is that when it came out? Yeah, yeah, last year. Awesome. Yeah, so unlimited willpower, and I just want to kind of, I loved. I think what touched me a lot about this book, man, is first and foremost, you're simply articulate. Like you really are. And despite like, you know, someone in your situation of still being in law school, when I say still, like obviously it's, you know, that, that that's a high degree in itself. But I find fascinating how well spoken the words from the book are. And it really set a seed to me of who you are as an individual and the values and core, um, you know, beliefs you live by. So it's a very powerful book. And I, I believe, and I'm only assuming based on the inside, um, the, the way the actual, uh, you know, there's a lack of pub, uh, actual public, uh, public publisher itself in there. So I'm assuming you self-published this, correct? Yeah, that's right. Dude. Honestly, it, self-publishing books is one of the most amazing feelings because you do it all yourself. When I say you all, you are project managing yourself, you write it yourself. You may have some other people involved, but you also learn a lot about business. You use it in certain ways. So, yeah. let's. Um, where were you when you just like? And what? What? Uh, I guess what period of your educational life were you at when you decided to write Unlimited Willpower? Yeah. Oh, so this is a story. So to, to answer this properly, I have to go back a little bit farther to um, the start of my TikTok. So um, I do content creation full-time, um, focusing on that really heavily while I'm also in law school and still running my company. Um, content creation started back in November 2020. Um, my best friend in the world, John, same guy I mentioned earlier, who I met in the gym and, and like went to this, did the whole law school journey with me side by side. Um, he's, uh, he's at Chicago, he's in Chicago at law school and had told me before he was like, listen, you have an incredible life story. You told it to schools for your personal statement. It's why you got, it's a large part of why you got so many offers and so much attention from, from really good law schools, you know, interviewed with Harvard and stuff. It's like you, 
you need to tell that story to the world and you need to do it on a platform where everyone can hear it and not just the limited form of your friends or a law school admissions committee. And at first I was like, I don't know, like, I don't know if I want to publicize that much about my life. Uh, I don't know if I want to share it, but I, the core realization I had was that this story has already inspired almost every single person that's heard it in a really direct way. Like the number of people in my life that have, that have been touched by it and are, and are like, listen, I know I wasn't along for this, but just to hear that you made it through this, I feel compelled to live a better life. Like memories of those experiences motivated me to tell the story broadly. So I picked up my iPhone um, and just took the video. And the story, as as the viewers are now hearing too, is like, or the listeners I should say are hearing now for the first time too, is um, I, I, I grew up in pretty much abject poverty, lost my dad at a young age. Uh, my family shifted into a really religiously extreme uh, church and organization, um, which I think is most accurately described as a cult. Uh, had super specific rules for how we were allowed to live, was extremely insular, had all these beliefs about how you know we were the only people going to heaven, what have you. And that was the community I grew up in. That was my normal. And I just, I had this, this, such this like box around the rest of society and the rest of humanity, believing that I was one of the few lucky people that would get to inherit eternal life when I die. Um, now the, the, the cold situation grew interesting because I did speech and debate. Uh, that's, that was like my thing. Um, I, I did soccer before speech and debate. I wanted to be a professional athlete, but got a concussion uh, in a freak accident playing Twister, true story, uh, and had to had to drop it. And I picked up speech and debate in the background. And that was something that my uh, the church in- encouraged me to do because it was like, oh, well, if you're good at public speaking, you'll be a great pastor someday, you know? And they were, I mean, they had me like debate pastors from other congregations when I was as young as 14. Like they had me memorize entire books of the Bible. Like this was not like, this was not like um secluded combine that just was really unintelligent. Like they were super academic and gung-ho. I mean, we had kids learning Greek and like Hebrew before they were like 17, <laughs> like to better understand the, the hermeneutics, hermeneutics of the Bible. All that to say, I did really well in speech and debate. Um, I won nationals in my second year. And uh, after that title, my church asked me to preach a sermon on Sunday morning. And one of the funny things about speech and debate and the nature of the activity is that it really forces you to examine the beliefs you have and question them because you don't always get to decide what side of the topic you're on, right? You know, you're, you're flipping around. So a lot of the, the reasoning and practice that I had done in competition, I applied to my own personal beliefs and had a lot of doubts and questions about some of the stuff I'd been taught specifically about how exclusive, uh, uh our, our, you know, heaven was going to be for our church congregation. And so when I got the opportunity to preach a sermon, I preached it on why I felt my church was wrong. Uh, and why the doctrine that they were teaching was actually harmful. And I wasn't up in your face about it. I wasn't like, you know, you know, to heck with all of you. I wasn't doing that, but I was critical of it. And that resulted in a lot of tension in the church that led to, uh, you know, men from the congregation, like coming to my house and like debating me on the issue, like from out of state to make sure that I wouldn't become like a lost soul. Um, but I could see that their arguments were thin and shallow and, and, and in many cases were baseless. So I didn't, change my mind, you know? And uh, this culminated in an ultimatum that I got, which was basically to either publicly recant a sermon or be kicked out. Um, I made the decision that I did and I was excommunicated from the church. I uh, lost my home and became homeless uh, at about 18 years old. 
Um, now, I was sort of off and on in between periods of homelessness. And sometimes I had times where I could crash on a friend's couch or uh, stay in my car or in a park or something. But that whole period was brutal. And it represented basically a giant reset on my entire life. You know what I mean? Like I, it wasn't just like a couple of friends. It was like my whole community because I wasn't really allowed to have friends outside the church. Um, everything about that, that was my whole world and it shattered and I had to get replaced somehow. I had to get built up. Um, and it made me an extremely self-reliant, independent person because I had to figure this stuff out on my own. Now, the rest of the story is shortly after that, uh, I started a company teaching speech and debate. I finished my last year of high school um, taking classes in a public library on my computer using their Wi-Fi connection. Uh, I was homeschooled my whole life, so I only had a few classes left, and I, I figured out a way to get it. Got my diploma mailed to my friend's house. Uh, didn't go to a graduation ceremony or anything, but I uh, got it taken care of. And in my um, my last year of high school, I, I did speech debate for one more year, and I won nationals a second time, which no one had done. No one had won nationals in separate leagues like I had, which made it a big deal. And that fame motivated me to start teaching speech and debate because I was like, listen, this whole thing, this whole speech and debate thing taught me to question my beliefs and gave me a better version of the truth and ultimately a brand new life. So these skills are pretty important. I want to share them with other people and I want to see if the amazing life lessons I've learned from the activity can be given to someone else too. And uh, as I told you before, the company grew while I was at college. I moved from Tennessee to uh, Texas in large part to just get away from the environment where I was before and start fresh. Uh, and, and that's the rest of the story. The company grows to the top of the industry. We train you know, dozens of national champions um, and just in three short years become the very best uh, in speech and debate coaching for, for the leagues that we're in uh, in the country. Um, so that story, long as it is to tell over this podcast, that story was what I told in a five-part video series on TikTok. And the very second one blew up. The fifth one blew up like crazy, uh, several million views, um, picked up by a Today Show article, just went absolutely nuts. And it was that that fifth part was about my friend John and going to law school and everything else. So that was me getting on social media. And around the turn of the year, so January uh, 2020, um, 2021, um, I made a video, uh, about everything I did in 2020 and it chronicled a lot of the things that I mentioned, you know, getting the, um, uh, scholarship from USC and locking in law school, uh, getting a new car, starting a new company, moving across the United States, going viral on TikTok, you know, everything else. So I chronicled that year in a video and it too went crazy viral. And while I was on a live stream, I, I wish I could remember who it was, but this guy said, dude, write a book. <laughs> I was like, yeah, why haven't I done that? Like, why have I not written a book about this? Because there's so like every part of my life story is interconnected and it's high time I tell it. So that's a lot of context, but that's the accurate context from why I wrote the book. Um, and then about eight days, eight to 10 days later, it was ready to be published. Yeah, that's one of the wonderful things about self-publishing books. You don't have deadlines that are months away and you can get them done real quickly because it's totally on you. Um, man, that's a... That's an awesome story, dude. Uh, I'm thank you for you know, sharing that. Uh, it, it's it's incredible. It always amazes me, astounds some of the individuals I get to have on this show, and just even people I get to meet in general who 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 are pretty like yeah, very young age and tough situations, and manage to be 
some of the biggest inspirations um, to the rest of us. So mm-hmm. thank you, thank you very much for being you, dude. The uh, yeah. help help me be a little uh, aware on something here: speech and debate. So. Uh, I remember growing up in high school in Australia. I was uh, I was a, I was in legal studies, and I remember doing. Um, I guess we had our own little practicing law competitions. I was a barista, didn't do too badly, might add. Um, but man, what what is um what is speech and debate like specifically? And I'm also very interested. Um, how the hell I got a two-time national champion on this podcast at something. So uh, if you want to dive a little bit into how that actual competition works, so we just can build some context around your awesomeness as well. I appreciate that so much. Uh, yeah, so speech and debate is sort of like track and field. There's a million different events, but everyone knows track, like everyone knows those. And uh, you know, you're know, you familiar with a few of the other stray events. Speech and debate is a conglomerate of debate events and speech events. Speech events are typically... Um, you know, someone will stand up and give a 10 minute speech on a, on a persuasive topic, for instance, like, you know, why the United States should leave NATO or something like that. They'll present a thesis and argue for it. Um, and there's other different kinds of uh, what are called platform speeches where you pre-prepare things. There are speeches where you don't have preparation. You sort of get a topic and you have to run with it immediately. Um, but the, and, and there's, you know, not to say anything bad about speech, but the, the heart of the value of the activity in my mind is found in debate. And debate is simple. Um, you're presented with a topic. You are assigned a side to it, and then you have to debate and convince some person judging you that your position is correct and your opponent's isn't. Uh, Typically, that revolves around a a statement that debaters call a resolution. So the resolution could be something like, free speech should be valued above a community's moral standards. And the affirmative team will make arguments about why that statement's true, and the negative team will make arguments about why that statement should be negated or why it's false. And And this is the the most important part about debate. It's not about the topic. It's not about the speech times. The most important part about debate is that it can be judged by complete strangers. Debate tournaments, most of them, not all of them, but debate tournaments will frequently pull in random people from the community. You're going to have a tournament in Arkansas. Cool. Put out the flyers, get random people from the community in, you know, uh, woo them in with free snacks and whatever else and get them to judge. And the beauty of that is that it forces high schoolers uh, who are, I say this having been one, ostensibly emo, figuring out their place in the world, largely insecure, many of them. It's giving them the opportunity to work with an adult and be convincing to them objectively, not just sort of like, here are my arguments. Like you have so many examples of students that will speak super fast and read through all this research and they just confuse their audience and they lose and they get so mad. They're like, this is so unfair. This judge is so dumb. If they were smarter, they would have believed me. And I, one of the most valuable things I do is I walk into those situations and I go, look, you're never going to get the audience you want. You're going to get the audience you get. You need to be convincing to them and not worried about whether or not your audience is good enough for you. So work with the, you know, 45 year old, um, gardener who's pulling up to your debate round and couldn't care less about the topic, work with them and get them to care. You know what I mean? So the, the main function of speech and debate is that you're putting yourself in this position where you have to convince somebody you don't know of your position and you need to work with their biases. Students will get you know, upset. They'll be like, this judge is so biased. And like, I'm always in this position of telling them like, yeah, they are. Make them biased for you. Like that's the whole point of persuasion. So there's so much value in speech and debate. And even having, I mean, having done it and now having taught it for nine years, I, I would, I would, 
confidently say it is the best extracurricular activity that a high schooler in the 21st century could do, you know, because it's like archery is great. Don't get me wrong. But like communication <laughs> skills are what is separating is what's it's it is what's separating people from um, success and not success in this era. Yeah, dude, this is massive. Just to kind of, um, as I'm going through this, there's so many skills and just practices in general that people would develop coming out of these kind of exercises. Uh, like I, I'm even, I'm actually curious how many national debate champions have turned into presidents. Like, is that even a, is that a, is, is that a, I don't know, is there a study in that? Is there some data to back that up? Oh, yeah. Very curious. Oh. We're so people that did speech and debate are so overrepresented in um, top positions, CEOs, of course, lawyers, um, political fields. It, it, it's it's actually quite rare to find a person in Congress that didn't do speech and debate um, in high school or college or what have you. Um, it is well, it's one hundred percent the path. You know what I mean? Like those are the people that become the most communicative, and it's a large part too. Is like. There's this stat out there, and I don't know if this stat is accurate, but it always tickles me when people read it. They're like, in many surveys, people rank public speaking as something that they're more afraid than death, more afraid of than death, which is insane to me um, because I love public speaking. It's one of my favorite things to do. But it's true that people don't ever get experience talking to large groups of people. And then society's like, hey, um, would you like to pitch a business idea to a bunch of cold hearted investors? And it's like most people aren't taking that route, entrepreneurial or otherwise, because they don't have the skills to even communicate about it. You know, um, I know it's super cliche to complain about how, you know, all these young people are stuck in college degrees and they should just get on the crypto and NFT train. And I'm not saying they should, but I definitely think that there's a large, there, there are probably millions of people in the United States that would like to do something more entrepreneurial and more creative with their life, but they can't because they don't have the communication skills to sort of launch themselves there. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. Last week we did a podcast around personal brand. And I think this, you know, this is a huge to kind of back that up in the sense that, you know, this is why I asked that, those questions to really build context, but also to understand skill set and development, because we yeah. talk a lot about investing in yourself, you know, yeah. finding time, whether it be reading your mental state, um, applying your knowledge or like your time to learn more and, it, it, you know, using speech and debate as an example, you are right. Like when are you going to get that opportunity to, even if it's just one person, be on the side of trying to maybe convince someone who has the decisive power on maybe a, something that's important to you. Um, but when you get the practice to actually, apply something it's a skill you know not a tribute but a skill i feel like this is something that you can definitely develop through um a form of practice and feedback positive feedback yeah. loop so um yeah man it's it's really it's 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 pretty incredible as i sit here and listen to you talk about I'm like whoa it is so true how I, I i personally have never looked into a mirror before and said a speech to myself right i've never done that i've never personally had a speech coach or anything like that. And I listen to the way that you talk. Granted, you probably have the IQ three times mine, so that's definitely going to help. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, but you, you, a big part of it obviously is your development to continuously be amongst people who 
you know, are challenging you and your brain and your confidence in a way, in the right ways. Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always wild to me how meta communication skills are and then how absolutely like little we get from them in school systems or just in our upbringing. Like we're often shooed away from public speaking opportunities to focus on other sorts of things. And it's like, um, you know, I don't, I never say if you do speech and debate, you'll have the life that I have, but I had no doubt that I would not have had the confidence to start a company about teaching speech and debate or do social media if I didn't have the confidence to tell my story. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that is, again, so important. Like the, the, the storytelling aspect of social media, the storytelling aspect of your own life, it's like stories are really what ignite people. They're the most effective way to present information. All good ads come down to that, you know? Uh, and it's like you need to have that skill to survive, you know, to do really well. And that's what I think speech and debate helps, helps kids get a lot closer to having. Oh, yeah, man. And you do not have to be a high performer to get the benefits out of that, for sure. That can be a family exactly. environment. That can be absolutely everything. Although if you are trying to be someone in you know, a high-performing, more prolific environment, uh, sounds like speech and debate would be the way to go. If you, uh, if you want more on that and, and um, uh, you know, Joseph didn't actually ask me to say this, but I'll put, I'll put links to all courses in the show notes as well. So, mate, thank you very much for sharing that. And it's really, really, as I said, that's um, unbelievably astounded me um, in learning more about that because uh, that's, that's really cool. I'm, I'm also very competitive. So um, I've got two brothers and I'd love to learn to completely outwit and out-debate uh, them um, in any form of capacity possible. Um, awesome, dude. So we're going to move on to the actual, some of the books topics. I just, I, when I was reading them, it's like, it just hit me. I was like, Oh, that's powerful. You know, there's, yeah. I think, I think there's some lines in the book that I just really want to highlight. And I don't want to talk about the book too much because I know you've got so much to you, but, um, a couple of things I just want to highlight to our lovely audience in the sense that you said confidence is memory of past success. Do you want to kind of elaborate on that? <laughs> Yeah. Um, confidence is always presented as the panacea to most of our social problems. You know, people are like, well, you know, getting ready for a date, they're like, just be confident. Or if they're getting ready to like pitch their business fund, they're like, just, just have some confidence. You know what I mean? But it's really hard to embody confidence if we don't understand exactly what it is. And way too often confidence is almost described as like a personality trait. Like some people just have it and other people don't. It's just genes. Um, but confidence really isn't that the, the whole, I think the, the most complete understanding of confidence is, is, as you explain the definition, it's the memory of past success. So like, for instance, you tie your shoe in the morning, you're not sweating. You're not lips. Lips are not trembling. You tie your shoe in the morning and, and you, and you get off to your day and you don't even think about it. You barely even remember doing it because you've done it so many times that you know how to do it. Well, bicycle, same story. You know, you know how to ride a bike. You're confident doing it and you don't think about it anymore. Confidence is not this like King Kong beat my chest ego thing as I do it. It's, it's not that. It's like the less you have to think about the activity, the more on autopilot you are. It's a sign of great confidence. Now, the way that I talk about confidence in the book is one of the reasons why people are not living the life that they want to live personally in terms of their daily habits, the, the choices that they make, and, and small stuff. I don't just mean having a ridiculous amount of money or, or like living, you know, on the beach in Jamaica or something. I mean, 
specifically, people are not living up to the standards of themselves that they want to have because they don't have confidence in doing it. You know, someone who says, I'm going to try to wake up at 5.30 a.m. tomorrow morning, immediately as they say that, if they're like anybody, they have this voice in the back of their head that goes, remember every single time that we said that and didn't do it? What's going to make this time any different? So when you lack confidence about your ability to accomplish new things for yourself, you don't really change because the crushing, the, the trauma of unrealized potential just burdens you. Dude. <laughs> yes. Yes. As I'm talking about, I'm like, I'm on the affirmative side of this. <laughs> I'm in the stadium stands, just absolutely cheering. Um, massive. Dude. I, I I think that example of the shoe is, like, uh, yeah, far out. Like, listeners, how often do you do you uh, actually recall tying your shoes from the morning? Or actually, you right. know, to be honest, I know a lot of the people sometimes not even wearing shoes anymore. They're wearing those slip-ins, so they just bypassing that absolute argument altogether. So we'll think of something else. How often do you think about washing your hands? It just happens, right. hopefully even more so now. But uh, right. yeah. <laughs> these are just natural things you build into your psyche. And yeah. uh, I guess it comes with that that parallel concept of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the what's interesting to me is confidence is not this tool that we should like cultivate and then deploy when we need to do something kick-ass, like start a new company or give it a super important speech to your, to the board about some new business opportunity. Like that's not what that, that, that is not the domain or the exclusive domain of confidence. It takes a lot of confidence to say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of waking up at 10 AM after the day is already, you know, a third of the way over for most people. I want to start waking up at sunrise and I want to start taking five minutes. You cannot possibly grasp how short that time is, how little it is to contribute. But I'm going to take these five minutes that I've struggled to take for years of my life. And I'm going to meditate. I'm going to put my phone away. I'm going to take off my shoes. I'm going to sit cross-legged and I'm going to close my eyes and have nothing going on and distracting me other than my practice of meditation. That takes enormous confidence. In some cases, a lot more confidence than doing some of the things that society requires us to, like apply for a job or go to school, things that we don't for many of us, it's like the social pressures are going to push us there no matter what. Uh, that's where confidence comes in. And if you can only like, you know, not to focus too much on the negative, but to, to discuss the remedy, it's like the way that you build confidence for stuff like this is to take extremely small micro goals and just crush the hell out of them. I don't want the first person I work with to meditate for 30 minutes. I want you to meditate literally for 90 seconds, like less than the time it takes to cook a hot pocket. I want you just to practice that. And if you get that once a week, giant high five, crushed it on all sides. But people get so polarized and they're like, oh God, if I'm not doing this, like work out every single day, meditate every single day, eating nothing but fruits and vegetables and lean meats. If I don't do that, then I'm not good enough. And it's like, no, 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 you need, you need to memorialize the extremely small micro accomplishments, micro accomplishments that you get on a daily basis. Cause those, those are the things that are building confidence. Like I meditate every, I've meditated every single day for the past 536 days. Like I've not missed a single day. And the reason why is because I started really small and I screwed up a lot. And every time I screwed up, I just inched myself closer to the goal and practiced those 
tiny little increments over time. And, and more than that, I made myself feel good when I accomplished them. I wasn't just sort of like, well, you're nothing yet. I was like, I would celebrate when I got in my three-minute meditation. And as a result of that, I had the confidence to do it over and over and over again. Do you feel that, uh, I, I don't want this to be a loaded question, but, and, and so no. for that reason, answer honestly, did you feel um, by championing yourself after the feat of just, honestly, and I, I call it a feat because a lot of us still struggle to sit still for consistently for three minutes, uh, which mm-hmm. sounds like such a short amount of time, but at the same time, a long time. Right. Did you feel um, joyous and did you feel the, uh, the serotonin pumping through you through that? Or was it kind of, did you have to kind of force it upon you? To, to start meditating? No, no. As as a result of meditating, the the ability to I think you said you were, uh, you know, you were stoked once you um, not because you finished, but because you achieved the ability to be consistent at uh, you know meditating every single day. I think we mm-hmm. we often in a space like this don't actually champion ourselves. You know, right. it's we, we definitely not, I wouldn't say rely on other people, but other people have to do that for us. So when you yeah. when you achieve something like this, like without a doubt. Um, to, to quite a lot is actually like, you know what? I did it. I did something that to other people would be hard or even to myself, I previously wouldn't do. So why shouldn't I celebrate this feat? And, and, and I want to know, is that something that yeah. you force upon yourself verbally to then motivate you to continuously apply it? Yeah, no, uh, I, I like the language that you're using. It's championing yourself is, is precisely what's missing from so many people's, um, goal analysis of their routines and their daily decisions. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, I would, uh, I, so I started meditating when I was, it was, it was during a year's, around a year's time frame where I was living on a, uh, on some farm property and they had this open field. Uh, I would walk into and meditate shirtless. It, it sounds like, I know this sounds ridiculous and people sometimes make fun of me when I say it, but like, this is actually what happened is I, yeah, talk us to the actual practice. Talk us to the actual practice. Don't shy away from it. Put us there. We are in your visual representation. Detail for detail. I would walk out right around sunrise and I would meditate shirtless in the field for about 20 minutes. And I worked up to 20 minutes because I knew that it was really uncomfortable. I knew that I really wanted to stay in bed. And that was the surest sign that I needed to get the hell out of it. I was like, mm. I, I knew it was during that it was, it was for context. It was the year in my life where I was in between. I just sort of begun the, some of the homelessness phase and some of the, you know, crashing on couches phase. I was in the midst of that before I even got to my undergrad. And I was like, I know that I'm going to need to do something insane with my life. Like I know that the life that I'm living now, and this is just as an aside, this is a, a method of thinking about your current life and your decisions. It's been very powerful for me. And it's this. Imagine that your life is a story that you're one day going to tell to other people in the future and make decisions based on the story that you want to be able to tell. And the story that I wanted to tell is that I overcame everything, that I I became more than a statistic. I stood on the outliers and said, look, I'm going to do something truly astonishing with my life and my existence, and I'm never going to settle for less than that. And so I knew that part of getting there before I could just launch my company into the ether or whatever else meant that I had to be an extremely disciplined person. So even for stuff I didn't fully understand yet, like I didn't know all of the science behind meditation, but I pushed myself to do it because I knew that it would be part of a disciplined routine and I knew that it would be good for me. And of course, you know, one of the benefits of meditation that 
know, there is a serotonin rush for me when I finish because I'm proud of myself for having done it again, as you mentioned. But there's also like the most of the effects of meditation, people don't talk about this. Most of the effects of meditation are found in the rest of your day. You're like, wow, I'm like way, there's like a space in between something happening to me and me emotionally reacting. There's like a, a gap there where I can be present and connected and I'm not as like impatient and I'm also happier. You're like, what's going on? You know what I mean? Like it's those kinds of effects uh, that were, um, you know, you're, you're far more likely to realize after practicing meditation with consistency. I know it's a long answer, but there is a serotonin rush that comes from consistency and an additional one that comes spread throughout your day because you're more balanced. No, I do. I love how you highlight the fact that, you know, the benefit or the, you know, almost like the, uh, the accolades themselves come later on in the day. I think it's, that's huge, bro. Like I think, I think it's massive. When we think about what we get out of these things, it's not necessarily the immediate, but it's the feelings right. throughout. You know, we don't meditate for what the uh, uh, effects we'll get, the immediate rush afterwards. Right. Um, it, it's something that helps us put in a state for the rest of the day and helps us sustain every period of time. So um, yeah. love that, man. Absolutely love that. And, you know, you're talking a lot about willpower here, which is obviously huge for the part of the title of the book. Uh, you say that willpower is the ability to consciously change your default behavior. Um, yeah. And then you go on to actually use a nice phone example. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just curious as to, you know, effectively that that note, man. I think willpower itself is something that um, we talk a lot about maybe subconsciously. Um, we probably too often use it in the wrong context. Um, and so I, I'm looking at when I was reading this and saying, you know, willpower is something that, I personally love to help empower people to have. I think it's such a strong disciplinary action. Um, and so reading your, your, your notion of the ability to consciously change your default behavior, that's a lot because yeah. it's so true that too often we get into habits that are good and bad, but irrespective of that, say you're putting yourself in a position to change. And yeah. actually enact that change that uses willpower, and that yeah. is massive. And I, I think the common one would be simply like, "Hey, I'm going to not use my phone for a weekend, <laughs> just because I've right. uh, been using it too much, or I just it causes too much anxiety." And um, the ability to go without your phone, or maybe to switch off social media more specifically, can definitely enact that. You know that. Uh, that I guess the parameter of willpower. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's what's, I think the realization that most people need to unlock is it's not that there's, I think most people think of willpower as this like giant, it's this giant energy bar that some people just get more of. And so they get to spend it farther. You know, it's not, it's not like that. It's purely contextual. So in your current environment, you have a bunch of default behaviors that you've become accustomed to as a result of doing them over and over and over. Uh, not unlike an explanation of neuroplasticity, where your brain literally develops certain neural pathways and methods of thinking that are so comfortable uh, and, and familiar that they become the default. Resisting those is always difficult. So if you're used to going to bed at three o'clock in the morning, going to bed at two might be a super big challenge. But the solution, like the way of getting out of ruts and of, out of personal habits that are bad for you, it's not like it's not like you're going to wake up one day and change all of that. It's really slow. 
and it's really minor. Uh, you just make slight tweaks to your environment until it's optimized for what you want. So, you know, somebody, let's say they don't eat well, um, they primarily like fast food and processed foods, what have you, and, and like no vegetables, nothing. Uh, definitely a period of my of my life where I was doing that. They don't sleep well um, and they're doing very little to better themselves. It's like the start can't be fixing those. It has to be with one really tiny act of resistance, one one stiff arm to one area of your life and that's again because you know willpower is in many respects a finite resource you know it's like you cannot change everything in your life all at once um you spend that first little bit on the change that you want to see and then you make that the default so now for me the default is waking up at 5:30 in the morning it would actually take more willpower to sleep in until 9 like i couldn't do it because i'm simply not used to it so it's about changing what the defaults are and with the right gradual process you can make the default something really impressive Massive, dude! I love yeah. that. That is, that is huge. A lot of resonance. <laughs> it's so good, man. It really is. And I think uh, we talk about morning routines. We discuss habits or healthy habits, and I think it is important to kind of address willpower and its role in in either creating those or adjusting them. So it's um, yeah. I'm really glad you highlighted that. So massive, dude. And I did. Yeah. I love the segue we had the opportunity with because you touched on food. Um, and how food has played a huge role pretty much recently in your life. Well, it's obviously yeah. today you life, but very recently it's had an even big impact. Um, I know you've, you've talked and you've actually had a viral video about this, but specifically around your philosophy on food. Um, and I'm actually like in, in a very curious way to, I wouldn't say debate you, but talk to you further about this um, and, and learn more. So firstly, yeah. do you want to talk through your philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess for some context. So I always had to cook because I didn't have money and couldn't afford to purchase food out. So I was either in the like undergrad cafeteria or I was cooking for myself in my dorm room. And that was just, I mean, that was just what I was used to. I mean, I didn't grow up with money either. So my, my family, we were always cooking. Going out to you would be like a very special occasion. It would be like, we would know about it weeks in advance and we'd be looking forward to it and be like, we're going out to eat today. And like, that would be the deal. Um, so I knew how to be self-reliant and cook. And that was just sort of a, but it was, it was a survival instinct, nothing really more. And then I went to my first college house party. And when I walked in, it was, just, it was like the most, it could have been a scene from a movie. It was like the most beautifully stereotypical house party I've ever seen. Pretty much every, everyone there has like their own nickname, people playing beer pong, Super Smash Brothers in one room. Like it's it's just vibes are on. It's a great time. And uh, I just started undergrad. So it was the first like house party experience I'd had, period. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, I've just I've hit it off with everyone really well. We're, we're getting along. And uh, one of my friends, still my friend to this day, his name is Splat. Uh, pretty much no one else knows his real name, but we all call him Splat. And it's. If you ever met him, you would understand. It's a great description of his personality. He just puts himself out there. Uh, he's like, hey, we're, we're thinking about getting some food someplace. Uh, he's like, oh, you know, are, are you thinking about it? I'm like, yeah, but I'm like, no one wants to drive, you know, like no one wants to do an Uber Eats situation. And I was like, how about I just like cook? You know, this is like two o'clock in the morning at a house party. You know, like everyone looked at me like I grew a third head after the second one. And I was like, would you guys, I was like, is that, is that cool? And they were like, can you cook? I'm like, yeah. I mean, like, you don't, do you ever cook? And they're like, no, dude, we just order food. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, I walked over to the fridge and it was like, 
truly a MacGyver situation. There's there's like nothing in there. There's like some beans, a couple slices of bread, a few eggs. And I was like, all right, let me make something of this. So, uh, you know, just a multitude of drinks in made like breakfast omelets for everyone, like 15 people. At, at the, and it was just pulling stuff out of shelves and pulled it together. At one point, like called in everyone into the kitchen because I was like, hey, hey, watch this. And I like flipped three eggs in the pan at once, like perfectly. And they all like, they all lost their mind. They were like, no, ah, ah, like just screaming and stuff. It was a great time. It was like a, definitely like the one of the highlights of my college experience. And it was, you know, it was food. It, it wasn't a big of a deal. It was just food. But I, I remember leaving that night, making all these new friendships. And I was like, dude, I, I'm going to leave this party something of a legend because I made food. And I, it was like, it hit me that like, oh my God, most people don't cook. Most people don't. And I was left with this really deep impression that like, Cooking and feeding people is such an it, it is such an easy and timeless way to unite people. Even if you're at a random house party with a bunch of like college randos you've never met before, and that's where I was like, I should really take cooking more seriously because I, I want to use it to bring people together and to unite my friendships. And so I did. I would go over to people's places. We'd invite 15 people over at once, and I would cook for them. It also gave me good practice. Uh, I'm always a hungry guy, so it was just like there are a bunch of positives. Um, that was sort of the start where I was like, I saw the value in it. Uh, following that, in about uh, November 20, uh, this would be 2019, uh, November, December 2019, I got deathly ill. Uh, could have been COVID. Everyone always says like, oh, I got COVID before the great pandemic. Who knows? But uh, I got deathly ill, like 106 degree fever, like longed for death. I was in so much pain. And afterward, one of my friends who's a big health guru was like, dude, let me just ask you a question. When was the last time you had a green vegetable? And I was like, uh, I literally don't know. Like I've been eating peanut butter and bread and, and milk. And that is literally all I've been having for weeks. And he's like, dude, I want you to have three different colors of raw vegetables every single day for the next 10 days for breakfast. You can eat other food, but start off with that and let me know how you feel. And I don't know if it's just me. I don't want to prescribe this to anybody, but I... I, you know, the movie Limitless, where like, yeah. the guy, that's what I felt like. I was like, I had the most unbelievable energy, like where I was like, is this laced? Like, is this, like, is this normal? Is this what vegetables are supposed to be like? And it, and, it, and it hit me where I was like, it was the first time where I had such a profound change in my nutrition that I was experiencing this difference in feeling every day because of the way I was eating. So I've got this story about uniting people through cooking. And I have this transformative experience where I change my diet and experience this amazing feeling throughout my day that is itself interesting. Um, and I start making recipes um, because I realize cooking food in a, in, a, in a large way for a lot of people and making food that makes people feel really good. I mean, that is a confluence of the two things that I've just experienced here while I'm at college. And so then I started cooking and creating recipes, et cetera. But the big thing I took away from it Especially, you know, because I said before I cooked, it wasn't like the first time I cooked, but it was after I got really sick and started eating vegetables and whatever else, I realized the most important aspect of eating to me is not how the food tastes. It's how the food makes you feel. Now, terrible tasting food probably won't make you feel like that. So you don't eat garbage. You know what I mean? But definitely the more primary factor to me is the, the feeling that I get from eating the food that I have. And that that philosophy, food and feelings, is I think what's primary to my to my time in the kitchen. 
Dude, thanks for sharing your story. We actually have some parallels there with our friends not having any understanding of cooking and how much uh, they love it. It was a uh, I remember that a few years ago for me as well. But dude, that's um that's massive, man. I, I'm so well, stoked to hear that through I guess uh, becoming self reliant and through that was a kind of form of survival that you have landed yourself in, in, with these principles and yeah. the philosophy of how you feel is so important. Like it really is. I always say the most important thing with my food philosophy is taste, right? Hence why yeah. I was curious as to how you um, kind of went about that statement. So, um, but in in retrospect, I, I cannot agree more because ultimately it does have to taste great because it's not going to motivate you to continue any further. If it does taste great, it's going to make you feel awesome. Yeah. So, um, I, I love I love that uh, I love that that purpose, dude. It's yeah, it's absolutely huge. I am also so um, big on the fact that <laughs> too often, and I've said my, my listeners have probably said this, heard me say this thousands of times. Look, in the day, food is there to be enjoyed. It is there yeah. to be um, a moment of absolute cherished time for you individually or with people around you, yeah. and that alone should make you feel amazing. And so uh, why not make sure it tastes good so it does make you feel absolutely great. But uh, I'm, just, I'm just wondering if any other listeners here who are, who are young enough to want to get into cooking or at least cooking at home, I would just suggest follow people like Joseph or just pick up a recipe. Go to a website, danchocha.com. It's always a good one. Uh, pick up a recipe and just have mm-hmm. a go. And that's honestly how you start. It's how you yeah. go. And I, I, you, can, you can back me up on this, bro. Like, be the first within your male counterparts to do it and I guarantee you will all of a sudden just be even more likable even though you already are. Um, but also it's going to create more conversation. It's going to get them involved and you'll find yourself having a further activity to enjoy, um, you know, over, over drinks or just with your mates. So, um, Joseph, mate, you have been an absolute star. So, mate, I, I know we've only got a few minutes left. So. Um, I do I do want to kind of hear what you have planned for the future. Obviously continuing yeah. your amazing content creation journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well thanks for asking and, and thanks for listening to all my stories. Um so when I started on on TikTok, it started off by me telling stories um and sharing details of my life to inspire people. And then it culminated in someone asking me, like, hey, like you should just show us what you eat. And I was like, Yeah, sure. So I showed him a recipe that I'd been eating for the past several months. It was called Scholar Bowls. Um, in about 15 minutes, it had been viewed one and a half million times. Um, 30,000 people had followed me in, in just a matter of minutes. And I was like, what on earth is going on? Um, fast forward a couple of days later, it's got you know, 14, 15 million views. 200,000 people have followed me in addition to those that I had before. And it was like restaurants were like adding it to their menus. I was getting like a million Instagram messages from families that are like, we made scholar bowls. Thanks. You know, like from, you know, this family in Arkansas, like it just became a sensation. And I don't, I was very careful. I would love to be corrected on this, but to my knowledge at like 16.9 million views and a quarter million shares. I think I can say it's the most popular vegetable bowl recipe on TikTok. I've never seen one come close to it. Um, But that's where it started. And I was like, 
I didn't realize the power that I had over the food I was creating and the and like I still get messages to this day about scholar rules and how people like it. And it was like, oh my God, I should probably work more on this. Like I let's see if the other recipes that I have resonate with people. And sure enough, they're like, oh my God, I love these too. So that realization, you know, I I still make all different kinds of content. I have a dog, I have a nice apartment, I like there, there are plenty of things to make videos about, but I always have a special place in my content for food and for recipes. So going forward, um, I think the next step for me is I'm, I'm working on a cookbook uh, to produce all of the recipes that I have and, and fit it into something that people can really live by. Because I think what's happened is I have, I have a lot of people that still to this day are like, yeah, I have scholar bowls for lunch every day. Like that is my base nutrition. And it's literally my base nutrition personally. That's why I shared it. Um, but I want to build a cookbook that could become someone's nutritional lifestyle, you know, to where they could go a few weeks and like with a sense of enthusiasm and euphoria, work through that cookbook and make recipes and feel amazing. I want to give what was the microcosm of scholar bowls to so many people. I want to give that same effect to people's uh, nutritional lifestyles through the course of a book. Uh, and so that's what I'm working on. I'm still, I still feel very far out because I'm still trying to make the recipes for it. I'm not even to like, you know, like, like getting a publisher or anything like that. But um, that's what I'm looking forward to, as well as you know, building content and growing my YouTube and Facebook pages and everything else. Dude, that's so exciting, man! Uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely here for you if you need uh, any form of tasting. I know that's always the most common. Yes. Uh, response I get but no if, uh, mate I'm, I'm here for you in any way you need so uh, I'm definitely going to try making one of these awesome scholar bowls I, I do need to get my view situation uh, on point too because you got a beautiful view of uh, downtown LA as, as you are cooking this awesome scholar bowls and everything else so um, mate speaking of your socials where is the best place for people to follow you man? Uh, best place would be my Instagram and my TikTok, which is my username is just the Joseph Abel, just as it sounds. Those are the best nice. places. Um, I just started a YouTube channel a couple weeks ago, and I'm working on getting content to that now. I'm uh, putting a lot of my a lot of YouTube shorts up, but uh, full length videos are coming in the next week or two. So uh, that's you know those are always the best. And links to those are always found in my TikTok files. So TikTok is kind of where it all starts. Awesome, man. So everyone head over. We'll put the links in the show notes to that as well, including the link to the Scholar Bowl specifically. If you want to check out, uh, obviously, definitely think about getting that book, guys. Really cool read. It's a very quick one, but there's some massive, massive key takeaways. And Joseph, my dude, uh, mate, until we get to hang out in person, maybe cook one of these delicious bowls up together. Um, my man, I appreciate your time, your story, uh, and obviously just opening up your wisdom to everyone else here. Dan, it's a delight to be on. I thank you so much for reaching out and having me on.